Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Speaking of exquisite is a gentleman, James Bevan from London, who has the audacity to actually think long term. And I mean, folks, longer term than so many that we speak to on Global Wall Street. He is with CCL and joins us right now. James, what is long-term for you right now? Is long-term getting to 2021 or is long-term for you out a decade? Tom, I absolutely think we have to have a multi-year perspective of where value goes. There is no point paying up top dollar to participate in equity markets at current levels unless we are absolutely confident that the corporate earnings numbers are going to come through. Equally, I look at bond market yields, and they are so far below what I reasonably project for medium-term inflation that I think that they are currently legal theft in many markets. Okay, well, that's fine. And so there's the value of cash. Is cash, and folks, I say this with immense respect for Mr. Bevan's institutional advice that he gives in, in London. James, is cash an asset for you right now? Uh, Tom, I'm holding in balance mandate around 10 percentage points in cash. Uh, That's not because I believe that cash long-term is going to deliver the returns consistent with uh, investors' expectations, but because I worry about the fragility of the equity market rally from the 23rd March low. What we have seen, and you will absolutely recognize this, is a huge expansion of the multiple that investors are being asked to pay to participate in equity market prospects. And I would say that that drive has been the result of the Federal Reserve and U.S. government throwing an awful lot of liquidity at markets, rather than any fundamental perspective of whether or not value is still available at these levels. To cut the chase, I think that we will see about $120 for S&P 500 earnings this year and about $150 for 2021. Now, if I were paying 18 or 19 times the 2021 earnings at the end of this year, that would give me a year-end target for the S&P 500 of 27 to 2,900 points, and we're there already. And that leaves me to worry about what will happen to markets if we don't get the V-shaped recovery. Now, the market is busy saying it no longer thinks we're going to get a V-shaped recovery and yet equity markets continue to plow higher. Uh, and that disconnect worries me, and hence my appetite to hold a bit more cash. James, the, de- the liquidity definitely is a story, and certainly in the United States, people are putting their faith in the Federal Reserve and ongoing fiscal stimulus from Congress. In Europe, however, I'm wondering how much that faith will get shaken by the recent decision by the German court system based on this idea that perhaps the ECB could be challenged in the future with respect particularly to their peripheral bond purchases. We do see Italian yields rising, the euro weakening. Do you expect that to continue? Uh, I find the European situation truly fascinating. We've not yet got the details from the European Central Bank of the target to lending numbers. What we do know is that they have risen an all-time high. Now, I have attempted to analyze who's borrowing from the Target 2 system. Now, we know that Germany and the other northern countries have been providing cash into the Target 2 system. The market focus, as you have identified, is on Italy. But actually, when I trace what's going on with the Italian economy and markets, 
I don't think that Italy is the principal problem. I think the two problem areas actually are Spain, because Spain is facing capital flight at the moment, and therefore is likely drawing heavily on target too. And equally, the French banks. I think that many people probably don't appreciate that a lot of the cash created by the Federal Reserve through its quantitative easing programs ends up being taken by the French banks via the ECB and then relent to emerging markets for what is, in effect, a carry trade. And I suspect that the French banks now represent very high-risk investments. What does your exposure look like to European financials at the moment, James? Almost nil, John. I look at the problems of the Eurozone. I absolutely am not predicting that the euro will break, but I find it very hard to see how European financials make any sensible money in a climate of negative interest rates. I mean, after all, what we have in the German banking system are the requirement for the Bundesbank to provide money into Target 2 in order to satisfy the requirements of the European Central Bank. The Bundesbank doesn't have any of its own money. It calls on capital from the commercial banks. And then to add insult to injury, then sends them a bill because of negative interest rates. Doesn't sound like an, an investment opportunity for many people listening Absolutely to the programme either. I agree. James, I'm leaning on the conversation that you and I have had over the chunk of the best part of a decade. I remember a man who used to like the UK banks, the UK financials, Lloyds, Barclays. Where do you stand on those names, those institutions now, James? Well, I think that the UK economy is going to have an absolutely miserable time, and therefore I think that the UK banks are going to be squeezed quite horribly. And I think it's going to be a combination of squeezed by fundamental realities. So many businesses are going to fail uh, and simply shut up shop through the current uh, crisis. And at the same time, I really don't think that the government, having provided money to support the banks, is going to allow shareholders to make supernormal returns. So against that backcloth, I do think that the UK banks are a bad place to be right now. James Bevan, thank you so much. Really, really brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for CCLA. Here's a quote from the global research team at JP Morgan. The V-shaped recovery playing out in many asset class has raised hopes that we will see a similar V-shaped economic recovery, but this appears unlikely to play out. The global recovery coming out of the lockdown is best described as a wave and not a letter, Tom. Love the idea of a wave and, and, and the multidimensionality of that. Joyce Chang is head of research at J.P. Morgan. She's done a spectacular job in getting our attention and particularly was shockingly prescient on a glide path to a weaker China GDP. Joyce, just to begin here and give you a modest victory lap, even if the circumstances were a surprise on the China collapse, is there signs that J.P. Morgan sees that China's recovering so John gets a different alphabet soup of recovery? Well, the only country that I actually think is going to look V-shaped is actually China. The rest of it is a wave, a fish hook, a Nike swoosh, whatever you want to call it. But China's GDP in the first quarter was down 35 percent. You know, the U.S. was down 5 percent, the euro area down almost 15 percent. So China in the second quarter we see coming back in a very V-shaped way and sustaining that. And that's because, you know, their ability to prevent a second wave and really clamp down um, I think is still in a very different place than some of the other advanced economies, um, which just don't have the capability of doing that. So China's recovery, I do think, will be V-shaped, but we're talking 1.3% growth here. We started the year at 5.9%, so it is a, a massive slowdown. 
a 14.5% of GDP deficit, which exceeds what they did during the global financial costs, but crisis. But I think they will see something more V-shaped than the rest of the world. There's a well-known quote from the British economist Ronald Coase, and it goes as follows. If you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. Pretty much everyone is torturing the data <laughs> right now, and it's confessing to anything. And what I always find fascinating about moments like these, Joyce, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, is that we all have the same data in front of us, yet we come up with radical different, different ideas about radically different ideas about the future. And I'm just wondering, Joyce, how you look at the data today and extrapolate that out to come up with what a recovery looks like. Well, I think you've got to look at the data, but then you also have to see that it was markets first, and that was V-shaped. So everybody then wanted the economy to V-shaped. Then you had that everybody thought the virus, will it be even more death, more extended? And now you're seeing that everything's restarting. So everybody's hopeful that the economy's restarting. That's what they want to see right now. And there are signs of that. When you shut down so much, some of it will come back. But whether it can be sustained, that's the real question mark. And when we talk about these shapes, we really look at what will happen by the end of 2021. And here we think that you're going to have nearly four percentage points off of global growth. So it's not V-shaped when you look at this on a two-year view at all. Joyce, I guess that there's a tension here between perhaps a lack of a V-shaped recovery, uh, but the massive Federal Reserve stimulus and, and the stimulus coming from the fiscal governments around the world. I mean, this idea that that will support valuations as much as though we were getting a V-shaped recovery in the economic data. And so it doesn't necessarily matter if we don't get the underlying statistics to justify it. Do you buy this, the sort of don't fight the Fed mantra that worked for more than a decade? Well, don't fight the Fed has definitely been the story so far because you had the sharpest sell-off in March and also one of the sharpest rebounds in April. So you've got to expect some consolidation here. But the real question is, is the Fed a backstop so you don't drop further, but is it really a, is it a stimulus? Um, are we going to actually see that stimulus play through? And that's where, you know, there's still real question marks on what the growth glide path is going to look like going forward. So, you know, you're going to see – so given such a sharp quarterly drop that there will be a rebound, but whether that can be sustained over the course of the remainder of the year and into next year is the real question mark. And you've got the geopolitics that we're still going to have to watch in all of this, you know, yeah. elections, the court ruling um, in, in, in Germany also shows that there's still a lack of cohesion within the euro area. Tell me what your team is steeled for Friday at 8.30 when we get an unemployment rate that no one alive in America has ever experienced. I mean, tip from, from Bruce Kasman on down to your lowliest of, you know, number crunchers, what's going to happen at 831 when we see 15% unemployment rate? Well, the unemployment numbers are just staggering. They're nothing that we could have even had in any scenario or imagination, um, you know, on our part. I mean, 25 million unemployed, you know, you, could this be 30 million unemployed? I mean, the whole population of the state of New York is, you know, 19 million. So I think that, you know, the question really will be that the way these programs are designed is that they are not permanent. They're supposed to self-liquidate when the economy is restored. Can you really restore these jobs as we get into, into later in the year? And which ones on the services side are, are going to linger and still have an unemployment rate that could still be around 10% even if it comes off of the peak? That's the real question. And that's the real question for the growth story um, and also whether you're going to see more stimulus packages necessary 
necessary. And we are seeing now that the Congress, um, the Senate's gone back into session, the House next week. I think you will see another stimulus package because of these unemployment numbers. Joyce, we appreciate your time this morning. Always fantastic to get your views on this program. JP Morgan Chair of Global Research there, Joyce Chang, on the latest, uh, what they're seeing in this market and this global economy. With us, Michael Ferroli of JP Morgan. Michael, all of us and you and Bruce Kasman and your team have to get to the Friday report. I believe you are published at 15% unemployment rate. How does that tilt? Give us a, a little bit of understanding of the band that you have around your good statistical guesses. Yeah, so it's obviously a lot wider than usual. And I think the important, one very important uh, consideration here is that the labor force participation rate, uh, which is the share of the, the over 16 population that's looking for a job or has a job, that could come down quite a bit, which it would actually uh, make the unemployment rate look lower than it would otherwise. So I think in an absence of a drop in the participation rate, we could be seeing an unemployment rate closer to 20%. Uh, but again, even wow. all those numbers yeah, taken in, taken together, I think there is a huge amount of uncertainty. I think most of us have been uh, using the weekly jobless claims numbers as our beacon in, the, in this fog. Uh, but even those numbers, I think, could be distorted by administrative backlogs, by a variety of conflating factors. Uh, I think the only thing we know is it's going to be a really terrible report. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that for the establishment survey, which survey gets us that non-farm payroll head, headline number, there may be some reporting issues there because generally non-responding firms we impute uh, the response of other firms uh, for those uh, for those non-responding firms. But a lot of firms that you know, just basically shut down in, uh, in April, won't have anyone in the office to respond to the, the Labor Department when they, when they do their monthly surveys. So there's a lot of uh, sources of distortion here. Uh, but I think it's safe to say it's going to be an epic number in terms of how bad uh, it paints a picture of the labor market. Michael, what are you saying to people who say, we know this number is going to be ugly, and for that reason we can move on and look through it? What do you say to them? Uh, I would say slow down. Uh, I think it's first important to gauge the depth of the hole that we're going to be digging out of. Uh, and we're not even certain that we're going to have that you know, done with this labor market report because there is some concern that, for instance, when the PPP funds, which are available, Paycheck Protection Program funds, which small businesses have to maintain their payrolls for eight weeks, when those funds potentially run out uh, starting later this month or on into June, you could see a second wave of, of layoffs. So we don't even yet know know the depth of the hole uh, we're digging out of, but I think it is important to know, you know how big that hole is. And then beyond that, the bigger question becomes, uh, you know, how fast we, we, we can return to normal in terms of the economic activity. Obviously, the bigger uncertainty is how, how fast uh, uh, it's safe to reopen things. But then even conditions on that, there's uh, a lot of uncertainty as to how uh, businesses and households repair their balance sheets or maintain their balance sheets and are able to you know, resume normal uh, economic activity. You know, just talking about the composition of businesses going forward, there's been a lot of focus on how small businesses have gotten disproportionately hit with one uh, government survey showing that 40% 
of smaller businesses in the United States expect to close down if the shut, uh, shutdowns last for six months. I'm just wondering how much you expect the small business world landscape to shrink in the wake of this consolidating power in the largest companies and what that does in terms of salaries, in terms of productivity, based on what we've seen over the past few years. Yeah, so I think at this stage it's hard to give you a firm number on what we think about that but, or our estimate on that. But what I would say is that even prior to this, uh, this event we're living through, there had been a trend toward increasing concentration of activity in the hands of a few large, uh, a few large companies in each sector. And that seems like it's only going to intensify. And I think there was some, uh, a lot of concern about what, uh, uh, what that concentration had meant. Uh, I think one of the implications was that it meant a decline in the labor share of total national income. Uh, so if this accelerates that trend, which seems almost certain, I think we may see a continued shrinkage uh, of the share of national income uh, going to labor. And I think that's one of, you know, uh, potentially many uh, implications of uh, us moving activity into, you know, into basically uh, publicly traded companies, right? So before this episode, publicly traded companies accounted for 35% of employment. We, We often look at the stock market as some kind of reflection of the health of the economy. It's a reflection of a third of the economy. But going forward, it may, it's perhaps reflecting a greater share of, of the economy. Michael Farley, thank you so much. Really look forward to the updates through the week and, of course, your weekly prospects out this weekend. Dr. Farley with J.P. Morgan is well. I've really been looking forward to this because this is a small little book that is a true bestseller. It is rare that you see a policy book fly off the Amazon shelves, but that's what economic dignity is, and it's what it's doing for Gene Sperling. Gene, I want to cut to the chase, and of course, I do want to point out Gene's former employment with Bloomberg, but more importantly, his employment, as Lisa mentioned, with President Clinton and then President Obama. Gene, I know that every progressive liberal Democrat is going to read this, and they're going to say it's great. I want you to talk about the disaffected independent or the disaffected Republican that Joe Biden has to convince to vote for him, what should they get out of economic dignity? I think what they should get is that they understand that there should be a dignity compact in our country. People expect that everyone's going to do their part, that they're going to try to carry their share of the load. But what we see at this moment, Tom, is we see a moment more clear than we've really had in our lifetimes, where we see the dignity and value of all work. We are looking at farm workers and delivery workers and nursing assistants who are literally saving our lives and, and ask and are just asking, can uh, they be treated not just with applause, but with actual economic dignity? And that doesn't mean, you know, that's not about, you know, some big socialist endeavor. That's about should you get paid a dignity wage, you can raise your family. Should everybody be able to take time off if their parent is dying or there is a newborn child or to care for themselves? You know, these are basic things. And and we're feeling the dissonance, Tom. We're feeling the dissonance of saying that these workers – Workers like farm workers, workers like nursing assistants, home aides, we realize they're helping to save our lives. And we have to ask, 
is it right that they can't care for their their own families? Uh, you know, I think I have I have three pillars I talk about. Well, in economic Gene, dignity. but before before yeah. we get into Go the ahead. pillars, though, I think that we want to talk about another dissonance that's very very present in our minds, and that's what we're going to be getting on Friday with that jobs report, which will likely be the worst in history. There's the basic need uh, that you speak of, the basic needs, but then there's the also basic need for a salary at all or any wages whatsoever. How do we preserve economic dignity at a time when one in five Americans, probably more than that, have don't have right. a job? Right. Look, I think when we're looking at the different things to get through this period, which is far different, I really think, than almost any recession uh, that, that we've ever dealt with. This is a freezing of the economy. It's a shutting down of a lot of economy, the economy. And people realize that people are, uh, are without jobs at no fault of their own. They are, this is a result of this pandemic. And so I think the two most important things is to try to make people whole in the sense of ensuring that they've got that paycheck while this is going on that allows them to pay the rent, not lose their home, make the car payment, put food on the table, be there for their children and their family. And so I think that uh, I would say um, the most important is, is, again, on making people whole. There's two ways being proposed to do it. One is that you have an, an unemployment uh, check that tries to be as close as possible to 100% of your paycheck till we get past right. this period of 20, 25% employment. Or uh, some people are suggesting, as they do in Europe, that you essentially pay that unemployment through the employer, keep people connected to the job and their health care. But I will say that we're going to also have to do more to make sure people can keep their health care because if so many people are losing their job, you're going to right. see more people falling off health care. I think okay. all of these are the, are the most central things to do through what could be a very long job recession. If you're just joining us, Economic Dignity, Gene Sperling. It's a controversial book across the political spectrum of this nation. Gene, I, I, I mentioned Vice President Biden. He's going to have to go out there and make, get the popular vote, get the electoral vote in that. I want you to address the theory of your book and the Gene Sperling, Pitbull Terrier, pragmatic liberalism that you are with, say, Connor Lamb outside Pittsburgh. You have mainstream, middle-of-the-road, conservative Democrats running from progressive Democratic theory. How do they fold economic dignity into their congressional districts that are so contentious? You know, I don't think it's hard at all. I mean, I'll give you an example of why. You talk about independent voters. Higher minimum wage has always been popular with, men, with, with many of the independent voters. Why? Because they understand that if a person is working hard, that they should be able to raise their family with a degree of dignity. And all I suggest in the book is that our fundamental guiding North Star shouldn't just be you know, some GDP metric, but whether you can care for your family and actually not just put food at the table, but be at the table, be there whether you have the pursuit, ability to pursue your purpose and potential, and whether you can work free from domination and humiliation. And I think there are, you know, I think you look across this country at the people now being ordered to go work and back to meat processing plants. Many of them will be Democrats, they'll be Republicans, but what are they going to believe? They're going to believe in the fundamental dignity of work. 
that they're out there doing well, the best they can for their family, and that to have a basic floor of economic dignity, of health security, is not to ask for a socialist regime. It's to, I think, fulfill the vision that you heard that, that Teddy Roosevelt talked about in 1912 when he talked yeah. about every job should allow a person to be able to raise their family with a degree of economic security. Yeah. Gene, I want to congratulate you. It's rare, folks, to see a book have the impact of economic dignity. It's truly stunning sales off of Amazon. Look for that. Gene Sperling, of course, working with Presidents Clinton and Obama. It is a controversial, thought-provoking effort, economic dignity. Gene, thank you so much. been beneath the radar, but it is important, important, important. We spoke with Michelle Patch um, this morning, our Francine Lacroix did. Michelle is in the heart of nursing at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I should mention that uh, Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP, on this radio and TV platform, as well as a philanthropist to his John Hopkins University. And the topic was exceptionally important, and that is this virus appears to be causing damaging blood clots. So just a little background, I guess, on what is clotting, right? Our, our, the human body, actually, we have an incredible ability to try and heal ourselves. Uh, so, for instance, when you have an injury to a blood vessel, say you're cutting tomatoes and you inadvertently slip and you cut your finger, um, those the blood vessels around that try to contract and stop losing blood. And then you have several different cells and proteins that will respond to that area and quickly try to build a clot or turn that liquid blood into solid so that you're not losing additional blood. So usually this would be helpful and protective for us. What we're seeing, though, in um, various types of severe illness, including some of our patients with COVID-19, is there's the potential for this system to really function in an overdrive setting. Uh, we clearly, as you mentioned, uh, you know, more study is needed, and this is complex, uh, and we're learning more and more every day. Um, but it's possible that body's immune response uh, including that cytokine storm and trying so desperately to heal um, may be associated with this increased clotting. Uh, additionally, when you think about very ill individuals who are immobile, they're on, you know, in a hospital bed, um, on a ventilator, and are not able to move themselves, you can get pooling of the blood um, that can develop clots. And those clots have the risk of breaking off and floating to different areas of the body, such as the lungs, um, and you can get um, uh, problems with your body's able to use oxygen. Um, and we're also, unfortunately, in some cases, seeing clots to the brain um, leading to stroke. Um, uh, Michelle, when you look at the virus, how is it actually changing nursing? How is it changing the way that nursing is organized, some of the command centers and the first responders? Oh, sure. So. Um, I think if you had asked us a few months ago, um, we may not have said that we anticipate um, as nurses being um, as, um, as ubiquitous as we are in all of the efforts for this. Um, but for instance, we have many of our nurses who are functioning within incident command centers, 
uh, across Hopkins and um, Hopkins affiliates um, in order to coordinate and facilitate our combined efforts. And that is around the logistics, the operations, how do we get the supplies we need, how do we get them to the front line as quickly as possible and to the right areas, as well as nurses being um, there as uh, decision makers and um, helping uh, the greater team to decide when should we um, actually launch certain types of uh, um, pressure, negative pressure units or bio-mode units that help to contain the virus and provide the best care for all of our patients, um, COVID and non-COVID alike. So it really has been um, a unique experience <laughs> for many of us, um, but one that I think we are uh, very prepared uh, to um, be working so closely with our colleagues to help fight. Michelle Patch, the Johns Hopkins University in conversation with uh, Francine Lacroix. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.